0: Welcome to the EC2 Nitro deep dive session. My name is Ravi Murthy. I'm a principal engineer in EC2, and I lead the Nitro Nitro team. Uh, In terms of an agenda, here's what I'd like to talk about. So I want to leave all of you, uh, when you leave the room, I want to leave you with a sense of what Nitro does, how it works, and kind of give you a deep dive into the Nitro system. I also want to spend a little bit of time on um, kind of what Nitro has done for us at EC2, and that is uh, continuously innovate on behalf of our customers. And through that process, I'll walk you through some of our recent instance launches. And so you'll get a sense of, once you understand how the Nitro system works, all of the instance launches that I described to you will kind of make sense. And the last thing I want to talk about is uh, something that is super important to us, which is managing our growing EC2 fleet. But before I go on, um, there is a number of sessions, even today and tomorrow, uh, that are related to my talk uh, and some of the things I'll mention in my talk. Uh, everything from 100 gig networking with, uh, with C5N, with EFA, uh, deep dives on the ARM architecture, especially since we announced Graviton 2, Uh, outposts Uh, It's something I'll talk about in my slides, but I'll go very, very shallow. There's a whole deep dive session. Um, And things like uh, how customers are optimizing um, and saving cost by moving to AMD. So Nitro, we've been using the Nitro system for about two years now. We announced the Nitro system in 2017 with the launch of our C5 instances. But actually, we've been working on the Nitro system for many years now. And it all began um, a few years ago when we sort of looked at uh, EC2. And we've been building EC2 for about 10 years by this point. And we asked ourselves a simple question. If we were to look at the platforms, the software stack, and just our fleet, are there things we can do to simplify the platforms and the software stack from a performance and security perspective? And that essentially led to Nitro. Like I mentioned, we introduced the Nitro system in 2017. We talked about it at reInvent with the launch of C5. In 2018, we launched a number of instances and features and capabilities based on the Nitro system. And in 2019, we expanded the number of instances and capabilities and features that we offered. And you'll see the difference between 2018 and 2019. And so the Nitro system is, Um, Actually, the Nitro system has been in development since 2013. We uh, introduced something called Enhanced Networking, or or, ENA, in 2013, and that was the first Nitro card that was doing networking. But at a high level, the Nitro system is really purpose-built hardware, purpose-built software, and a hypervisor that we built at at Amazon. The reason we call it the Nitro system um, is it's not really one thing. It's actually made of three important but independent components. The first is a series of cards called the Nitro cards. Uh, These cards do things like networking and storage, both uh, network attached storage we call EBS, or elastic block store, and instant storage. And then there's a card called the system controller, which I'll talk about. The second important component is the Nitro hypervisor. The Nitro hypervisor is something that we, we sort of looked at the existing hypervisors in the market and, we, and the existing hypervisors that were running EC2, and we decided to simplify it. And I'll talk about it a bit more. <clears throat> the last and the more important piece of this, this whole puzzle is the Nitro security chip. The Nitro security chip is something we built because we decided that we wanted to make our platforms really, really secure. And it's, it's our hardware root of trust. It's actually on the motherboard of our servers that we design. So when you really think about virtual machines, the first thing you think about is I/O, storage, networking, things like that, and it's really this. We think we tend to think of it as the soul of a virtual machine because when you launch an instance, you know how networking is presented in terms of network adapters, how storage is presented in terms of NVMe is super important, and it really gives a, it gives the, the virtual machine its personality. So let's, let's, uh, let, let's dive deep into one of, these, uh, one of these cards, or all of these cards. So like I mentioned, the Nitro card is not just one card. It's actually a series of cards. Um, there is the Nitro card for uh, VPC. There is a the Nitro card for EBS storage. There is a the Nitro card for instance storage. And then there is a the Nitro card uh, called the system controller card, which is our root of trust. Physically, all of these cards are different and it completely makes sense when you think about it. The Nitro card for networking, for example, if you were to sort of pull it out, you would, what you would see is it's talking to the host, the, the x86 CPU or the ARM CPU on one side, and it's talking to a network on the other side. On the other hand, the Nitro card for instance storage, for example, is a storage card. So it's talking to like, SSDs on one side and the host on the other side. So there are actually four different kinds of cards. But one thing that's common is they're built on the same ASIC. Um, and in fact, they use a lot of the common, they, we use a lot of the same software where it makes sense. Something that we haven't talked about in the past, um, and I'll mention that in this talk, is the system controller card or the Nitro controller card, which is really a root of trust. I'll, I'll go into a little bit of a deep dive on why we built this thing, uh, what purpose it serves, so you'll get a very clear idea of what I'm talking about. So let's deep dive into, one of these, uh, into, into all of these cards. The Nitro card for VPC, um, as, as it suggests, uh, essentially does our virtual private, private cloud. So if I were to walk up to one of our servers in one of our data centers, physically pull the server out, and pull one of these cards out, it would look exactly like a network adapter for, from any of the vendors, like from Intel or from Cisco or whatever else. What is interesting about this card, though, is that it is purpose-built to do one thing, which is VPC networking. But if you actually plug this card into a different server and power on the operating system, the operating system would see a network adapter, like any other NIC. And a driver in that operating system would bind to it, called the ENA driver, or the elastic network adapter driver. One of the the problems that we, we set out to solve with ENA was the following. So today, when you have a server in a data center, like if you have an uh, you know, enterprise data center or something, the server has, uh, let's say you have a 1-gig NIC plugged into the server. And uh, it's working for you. Life is, life is good. You're moving on. All of a sudden, you decide to upgrade to a 10-gig NIC. Well, guess what? You have to go and update the driver on that operating system to work with that 10-gig NIC. Right? There is, it's very, very rare to see the same driver essentially work to the next generation of hardware. Now with ENA, one of the things we wanted to solve was when you load your army in your instance, Ubuntu or Windows or whatever it is, you're loading an ENA driver. And we didn't want to have to tell our customers to go update their ENA driver every time we launched a new, inst- we launched a new networking capability. For example, if you were to launch a C5 instance today, you get 25 big networking, up to 25 big net- networking. The same, you can do the same thing with the same army and the same ENA driver and launch a C5N instance and you can see up to 100 gig networking, because it runs on a different card but uses the same ENA driver. And we did this by defining some, something called the ENA interface or the Elastic Network Adapter interface. This has really allowed us to innovate quickly and move quickly. The other component of the Nitro card for VPC is the VPC data plane. This is where you, as a customer, you know, you launch, you launch your army, you launch your instance. There's an army running inside the instance, either Linux or Windows. Um, and you basically say, you know, I want to make a socket connection and send some data out to the network. It just works fine. And as you can imagine, the VPC is a software-defined network. So uh, we obviously encapsulate and decapsulate packets, and all of that happens on, the, on this card. But there's other things that the card does. It implements security groups. It implements limiters and routing. We wanted to make sure we implemented security groups as close as possible to when the data originates. So, for example, if you were to send a packet, security groups are implemented in hardware on the Nitro card for VPC. Similarly, limiters. When we have conversations with our customers about performance, uh, whether it's throughput or packets per second, it really depends on what configuration is in, in uh, what, con- what is how, the, how your army is configured and how your network is configured. But one thing that we want to make sure is that customers get a consistent experience. So if you were to launch an instance, a C5 large, in one AZ or in one region, uh, and you get a certain network, you know, bandwidth, packets per second, we want to make sure that it's fairly consistent independent of where that instance is running, whether it's running in IAD or PDX or anywhere else. The other thing that we wanted to make sure was that, that you got that same consistent experience no matter where you were physically on the network. And that's what the, the limiters allow us to do. We've implemented a sophisticated set of limiters that take a bunch of parameters into account and give you that consistent experience. So while networking is super, super important for a lot of customers, because a lot of data flows on the network, a lot of customers also care about storage. And the Nitro card for EBS does exactly that. So again, if I were to walk up to a server, physically pull it out, pull out the Nitro card for EBS, It would just look like a PCIe card. And if I were to walk up to a different server, plug it in, turn the server on, boot up the operating system, what the operating system would see is an NVMe controller, a non-volatile memory express controller. What we're doing on the card, though, what we're doing in hardware is when the instance is submitting I-O requests to the NVMe controller, the the hardware on the card is basically taking those requests and turning them into requests on the network. So it's network-attached storage. When you think about network-attached storage, you need to think about it, and this is different from instance storage, which I'll talk about in the next slide. You need to think about it as follows, right? You launch an instance, you attach an EBS volume to it, and that's what this card does. When your instance terminates or your instance shuts down or your instance is killed, the EBS storage lives on. You can launch a different instance and attach that same EBS volume to it. Your data is there. But instant storage, on the other hand, is tightly tied to the instance's lifecycle. So if an instance dies, you pretty much lose instant storage. The other thing that the, the uh, Nitro card for EBS does is the EBS data plane, where we do things like encryption, where we sort of encrypt data as it's going across the network uh, with volume encryption. And, it, and so we've been implementing things like NVMe or Fabric for a few years now. And you know, people have implemented with several different protocols. We do our own protocol underneath the covers. So network attached storage is, is great. A lot of customers use it. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have attached EBS volumes to instances. Uh, you get things like durability and, and uh, the ability to do backups and snapshots and so on, which is awesome. But a lot of customers actually like uh, local instance storage. So when you launch an instance, um, if you launch one of the instances that has the lowercase d letter next to it, so a C5D or an M5D, um, you're essentially using an instance that can potentially talk to local instance storage. And what I mean by local instance storage is the physical SSDs are on the platform. They're not across the network. Customers come and ask us for these types of instances with certain capabilities because they want their data to be quickly accessible and local to the machine. And this is not for cases where uh, customers are trying to do backups or snapshots. This is for use cases where customers are trying to ingest a bunch of data, use the local instance storage as a cache, or maybe in cases where the data is just transient. They pull a bunch of data, they, they do some computation, and they throw away the data. Now what's interesting about local instance storage is if you go back one generation, so if you go back from C5 to C4, we didn't actually have instance storage. And there's a reason for it. If you go way, way back to C1 and M1, our first set of instances, we actually did have instant storage. And the instant storage was actually spinning disks on the physical platform. Now, the spinning disk can only spin so fast. It's physics, right? There's, there's a limit to how fast these disks can spin. And so you got a certain amount of bandwidth, which was good enough. But that bandwidth was better than the one gig network that you had your, on your card. So, network, so network-attached storage was still slower than how fast that disk could spin and give you a certain amount of bandwidth. But as things evolved, we went from 1 gig to 10 gig networks. And now all of a sudden, network attached storage became very attractive to us because it was actually better than local instance storage. Things evolved. Uh, SSDs came around with NAND devices. Uh, And so now you have a NAND device that is very, very capable. It has high throughput and bandwidth. But the problem was these NAND devices were still connected to the physical platform with something like SATA. And SATA is very limited in bandwidth. So the, the, the sort of transport was very limiting in bandwidth. But then uh, the world got introduced to NVMe. NVMe is this standard that's been fairly stable. It's been around for a few years. Uh, a lot of our laptops have NVMe now. And NVMe offers this advantage in terms of high bandwidth, because they took the NAND device and put it on the PCI bus. And so you can actually, as a, as a, as a software writer, uh, you or a software driver writer, you can essentially say, submit a command to NVMe, and it executes really, really quickly. So when we looked at uh, the C5 instances compared to the C4 instances, um, and when we introduced, for example, our bare metal instances with i3 metal, we, we brought back instant storage given we had NVMe now. So for example, if you look at our i3 metal instances that we launched in 2018, like April of 2018, uh, they offer up to 16 gigabytes of bandwidth, which is 128 gigabits. This is more than 100 gig NIC can do over, over the network. And the other interesting thing about... The other interesting thing, thing that the, uh, the Nitro card, for instance, storage does, besides the thing I just mentioned, is um, something we have to do for our customers. So imagine you have a NAND device. One of the interesting properties of a NAND device is you can write to the device, and it writes to a certain block of location, but there's only so many times you can write before that, that, that physical location wears out. And so NAND devices, or SSDs, have complicated firmware that basically says, oh, you're trying to write to some block of data. Let me relocate this block somewhere else. And it tries to keep moving the location so it evens out the wear on the disk. right? And so when you purchase a NAND device, let's say you buy a disk that's 16 gigabytes in size, what, what actually is on the disk is something like 19 or 20 gigabytes, because they have this extra space So you can do this thing. But what happens is, over time, these disks wear out. And the controller firmware is looking for a new location to write that data. It's constantly looking. And so over time, uh, the search algorithm gets slower and slower and slower because these locations are wearing out. And so from an application perspective, what you see is you open a file, you write to some data, you close the file. Well, over time, as things are getting slower, you'll see that performance sort of fall off a cliff. Now, you as application writers or as, as, as you know, um, kernel writers or driver writers, you can't code. You can't write code that says, you know, if my performance level is here, keep writing, or I'll stop doing it and you know, retire my instance. You can't write an if condition to handle this case. So what normally happens to applications is basically they will see this massive fall in performance, and it's just terrible. So one of the things that the, uh, the NitroCard for instance storage does is it monitors the SSDs that are attached to the platform to make sure that the wear level is just right. And if the wear level is going uh, below a certain threshold, we basically tell the customer, hey, it's time to degrade this droplet. So you need to like shut down your instance. The other thing that I mentioned, I think, earlier was that uh, the all of this functionality that I defined uh, kind of lives on the card. So it works for both hypervisor-based inst- instances, like the virtualized instances, and bare metal instances. So none of this functionality actually lives in the hypervisor that you traditionally think about that runs on the host. The last uh, important piece of this, this puzzle is the Nitro Card Controller. The Nitro Card Controller is really the brain behind this entire system. So you can imagine a physical server with the Nitro Card Controller and a bunch of other cards, right? The Nitro Card Controller is the entity that are actually talking to the other cards. It actually, so if you, if you look at it, if you think about it for a second, it looks like a network of cards that are talking to each other. But the NitroCard controller is the card that actually talks to the EC2 control plane, and it exposes a passive API endpoint. So I'll give you a very simple example. When you as a customer go out and say, launch an instance for me, please, that instance event, that that request eventually makes it down to one of these NitroCard controllers on a physical server in the AZ that you're launching the instance on. And the NitroCard controller then talks to the other cards, prepares all the required stuff to happen, EBS storage, VPC networking, It talks to the Nitro hypervisor that runs on the other side of the PCI bus, on the host. And it coordinates with the Nitro security chip to get the instance going. So the final thing I want to talk about is the Nitro security chip. We really thought hard and long about this. And and our solution was to implement a new chip that actually takes care of security. Now, if you think about how this happens traditionally, Actually, let me back up for a second. So, if you think about uh, a typical platform like a server, right, a server has a x86 CPU, like a two socket Skylake or a two socket Cascade Lake or some such thing. And there's a bunch of PCI cards, everything I described right now. But a typical server also has a bunch of microcontrollers, right? Uh, There is, all of you are probably familiar with a baseboard management controller, a BMC, that lets you, that always lives on, even when your processor has crashed, it lets you sort of it, you know It does things like looks at the thermals on the processor and says, "Spin up the fans to cool down the system." and so on. So there's a ton of microcontrollers besides the X86 CPU on a typical platform. Now these microcontrollers are executing code, you know, C code or assembly code or something. And obviously, if they're executing code, when they power on, they must be fetching that code from somewhere, And typically that somewhere is a flash device on the motherboard. So when you turn on the power. The microcontroller is told to go fetch code from a, micro, from a Flash device, load it up, and start executing instructions. And sometimes these instructions are full-blown operating systems like Linux that run on these microcontrollers. Right? So obviously, there is, there is Flash devices on platforms. And if you've ever uh, been in, the, in a role where you had to update the Flash, the way you do it is you basically log into your, your operating system, your SSH, maybe as root. You run some kind of command line or some kind of a GUI and say, here is a binary image for a, from, that I got from the ODM or my, or my hardware vendor. Please update that flash device, a BIOS image or a BMC image, and um, you know, make sure it's up to date. Right? What this means is, if you're running an instance, um, you're running a virtualized instance, you can essentially do the same thing in your instance. You can say, let me update the flash, but. The hypervisor is essentially trapping all those write requests that are coming from the tool and saying, nope, you can't write to the flash on the physical platform. You can't write to the flash on the physical platform. So the physical platform is still safe and secure. Nobody can write to it except the hypervisor, which is something that we control. So from an instance perspective, if two customers are running on the same physical platform, you can be guaranteed that nobody's writing to their flash and and modifying the system. On the other hand, think about what happens if it's a bare metal instance. When you launch a bare metal instance like an I3 metal, you're physically running on the physical hardware. There is no hypervisor. So the way we, we thought about this problem was one solution we could have implemented is something called UEFI Secure Boot, where when the system powers on, it starts from this, this tiny little code base that is signed and is authenticated before it's sort of the, the hardware jumps to it, the first instruction. That tiny little code base then says, "Before I jump to the next code." Um, let me verify its signature and make sure it's authentic. And then it jumps to the next code. And then that jumps to the next code. And that jumps to the next code. And so on. So there's this chain loading that happens. But you know that every stage is secure before you jump to it. So if somebody were to modify it and tamper with it, the signature would fail and the operating system would be, or the, the boot sequence would just stop. Well, this is too complicated. It's complicated to, uh, to update, it's complicated to maintain. So we decided to go a different way. We implemented the Nitro security chip. And what the Nitro security chip lets us do is it basically sits in front of every bus. So like I mentioned, imagine you run a tool on the operating system to update your flash. Obviously there's a physical bus from the processor to this flash chip where these, these bytes are going across and getting updated, right? So this Nitro security chip sits in front of, every of the, each one of these buses and filters all writes in hardware. And essentially what happens is the Nitro card controller talks to the Nitro security chip and says, if the bare metal instance is trying to do right, block it, so it's in this, in this mode. And one of the things we do is when a customer launches a bare metal instance, and then essentially terminates a bare metal instance and leaves, the Nitro security, the Nitro controller card talks to the Nitro security chip and says, go and make sure every single flash on the motherboard of this platform is exactly what I expect it to be. Here's what the image, here's the image I have, Make sure every single one has the same image. And if it doesn't, update the image before you let the next instance launch and continue. So this makes sure that if, as a customer, you launch an I3 I3 metal or a C5 metal instance, that the platform is completely sanitized and it's secure. The last piece is the Nitro hypervisor. Um, Like I mentioned, if you launch a bare metal instance, there is no hypervisor. But if you launch a virtualized instance, there is a hypervisor. We looked at uh, the Nitro hypervisor is based on KVM, uh, and KVM is part of Linux. Uh, so this is really part of Linux. But we looked at KVM and Linux, and we decided that we didn't want a system D or a busy box. We didn't want SSHD. So you can't physically SSH to one of our servers because we just don't allow it. The Nitro hypervisor is super, super, super thin. We took everything we didn't want and threw it away because a lot of the functionality was now offloaded to the Nitro cards. So the thing that runs on the physical host CPU is super thin. And what this gives us is two things. One, security, uh, because we know exactly what's running on the Nitro hypervisor. And second, it gives us great performance. And uh, to, mean, uh, to, to describe what I mean by great performance, here's, a, here's an example of something we did for a customer. So this was a customer that was trying to build an application that had a very strict requirement, like a real-time requirement, where they had to process a packet that came in within 50 milliseconds or some such thing. And it was very strict real-time. They were very nervous about running on virtualized instances, and they really wanted to talk about bare-metal instances. So the the chart that I'm showing here, the line at the very bottom, the red line, is what happened when the customer ran on bare-metal instances. You can see that the latency even up to the, the high percentiles, is very, very, very low. And it's consistent. The spike at the very end of the red line is what happens when uh, BIOS has this thing called SMM mode, or system management mode. This is where BIOS sort of interrupts uh, the processor, uh, steals, steals CPU cycles, and run, it runs, uh, you run in BIOS mode for a while. That's what that is. So we've sort of looked at the problem. We've optimized it now. The yellow line is what happens when you launch on a C4 instance, which is our previous generation instances, not based on the Nitro system. And you can see that up to about the 70th percentile, it's below the SLA line. And uh, that's really, really, really good, even for that generation. And if, after about the 70th, line, 70th percentile, it sort of creeps up. But it's still, it's still fairly close to the, the SLA line that we give to our customers. The blue line is what happens when you run on the Nitro system. Uh, there is a constant hypervisor overhead, which is very, very small on top of the bare metal uh, instance that I'm showing. And it's consistent up to a very high percentile. And this is because we, uh, we, we keep the hypervisor super thin and we offload things to the card. And we don't allow anything to run. The more important thing about this hypervisor is we call it a quiescent hypervisor. And the reason we call it a quiescent hypervisor is the hypervisor never, ever does anything unless an instance requested it. So as an example, if an instance were to do an I/O port write, that's when the hypervisor would run on behalf of the instance, do its thing, and be quiet again. And that's what gives us that kind of performance. So that's kind of a quick walkthrough uh, of the Nitro system. I want to really talk about um, what the Nitro system has allowed us to do in terms of innovation, because end of the day, that's what we sort of want to do with the Nitro system. It's really allowed us to accelerate the pace of innovation. Um, the first thing that you probably have heard when you came into this reinvent was uh, Peter DeSantis' keynote on Monday night, where he talked about C5N and, and, and the GPU-based instances. Andy Jassy, our CEO, also talked about um, Inferentia. Uh, they're all based on the Nitro system. Uh, all of the instances we've launched since 2017 are based on the Nitro system. But the other thing that has happened is it's allowed us to innovate in different architectures. So we used to have Intel-based architectures. So if you launched an instance, you're running on an Intel CPU. But now we're able to sort of replace the processor and launch uh, both ARM instances and AMD-based instances. The other thing that the Nitro system has allowed us to do is offer a broad range of bare metal offerings. So in 2018, um, we had an i3 metal instance that we launched. But if you look at the number of bare metal instances that we launched in 2019, It's a whole bunch of instances. We've also been able to accelerate the pace of new features and capabilities. So you as a customer, when you come to us and say, I want a feature, uh, we're able to take it back, work on the problem, and quickly deploy it. Um, And I'll describe how that happens. The, The most interesting thing to most customers when we have these conversations is all of this is based on a common code base. We try and maintain a common code base across all our cards. So I want to talk a little bit about the various instance types. Um, in 2018 right, at reInvent, uh, last year, we, we introduced the A1 instance. The A1 instance is an ARM-based instance. Uh, we, li- we launched the virtualized instance, which so it runs on top of a hypervisor, uh, the Nitro hypervisor. This year, uh, a few months ago, or uh, maybe a few weeks ago, we announced the A1 bare metal instance. Um, it's uh, an ARM instance that's running bare metal. We also announced M6G, I think, um, on um, either Monday or Tuesday this week. The M6G is based on the AWS Graviton 2 processor, and it's significantly better than the A1 processor, the the AWS Graviton processor. M6G offers uh, four times the number of vCPUs, so you go from 16 vCPUs to 64 vCPUs, Uh, faster memory, uh, like five times faster memory, and roughly 40% better performance across a bunch of workloads compared to our M5 instances. And so if you're looking to save cost, this is significant cost savings. Um, it's ideal for scale-out workloads like web applications. The other instance that um, we launched in, uh, in 2018 was when we looked at AMD epic processors um, like Naples. Um, AMD was interesting. Uh, the processors have a large number of cores. So we can offer a lot more cores to the customer. Um, And uh, it basically lets a customer take an existing x86-64 code base and migrate seamlessly to AMD, because it's x86-64 architecture. This year, we launched um, M5AD, R5AD, and T3A. T3As are burstable, super cheap instances, but they run on AMD. So if you're looking to save uh, cost, a lot of customers, in fact, there's a deep dive session on this, uh, look at this instance very, very closely. On Intel architecture, one of the things we did in 2019 was we launched um, the C inst- so the existing C5 instances on Cascade Lake. So our existing C5 fleet runs on Skylake. We introduced Cascade Lake, and the reason we did that is the Cascade Lake processor offers a better cost uh, point for us, and so we can pass on that savings to you. But it also offers us a more modern processor. In fact, one of the things that uh, we've been looking at is, as time moves on, Intel is starting to manufacture fewer Skylakes, and is starting to ramp up their Cascade Lake. So we sort of want to keep up with that. Um, what the, we've, uh, as we've launched Cascade Lake, we've also launched uh, three new instance sizes in the C5 family, the C5-12xlarge, the C5-24xlarge, and the C5-bare-metal. And this is the first C5-bare-metal instance. So it's a compute-optimized bare-metal instance. It offers 33% more vCPUs and 33% more memory. And we also have, um, if you were to launch on one of these, there's also um, access to new instructions that are great for deep learning and HPC, like VNNI. And obviously, you as a customer, when you launch uh, a bare bare metal instance, you're running physically on the hardware. So you can actually execute a CPU ID instruction, for example, and know you're on a Cascade Lake. I mentioned this a bit more, but I want to kind of tell you a little bit of a story here. So the way we sort of built bare metal was a fascinating story. When we build something, when we build anything um, in AWS, we listen to what our customers are asking us. So if you came to us and said, we have this interesting use case. We want you to think about this and build something for us. We take that back to our product management team, and we, we sort of think about it hard and long. And if you think it's interesting, we go and build it. So VMware came to us in 2016 or 17 um, and basically said, uh, we want you to build instances, bare metal instances, so we can run our hypervisor and move VMware Cloud to AWS. One of the things we do at AWS, which is awesome, is we never, ever, ever build snowflakes. We hate building things for one customer. So anything we build, we make it generally available to everyone. And uh, once we decided to go down this path of building a bare metal instance, which happened to be i3Metal, we made it generally available in April of 2018. Today, if you actually go and look for bare metal instances on on, um, our website, um, you'll actually see we have bare metal offerings across C, M, R, and A1 that I just mentioned. Um, So it's quite a a wide range. And this, this is really for customers who are looking to run on the hardware without a hypervisor, there are customer use cases where they just cannot run in virtualized environments for licensing requirements or because their workload just doesn't run in a virtualized environment. In fact, one of the things that the, high, uh, one of the, things that the bare metal instances allowed us to do is to offer high memory instances, the 6, 12, 18, 24 terabyte instances uh, that are used for like, workloads like SAP HANA. And actually, those instances are based on eight socket systems. Um, Skylake and Cascade Lake. Oh, the one thing I, I should mention in the previous slide is, um, and this is why I, I want to mention it, because a lot of customers ask us this question. Bare-metal instances are full-fledged EC2 instances. There is no reservation. There's, you can say, I want to launch a bare-metal instance on demand. It actually launches the instance somewhere in, in the AZ that you want, and then when you terminate your instance, the instance is gone. So it's not like you're reserving a bare-metal piece of hardware somewhere. One of the things we talked about at reInvent last year is the C5N instance. And you'll notice the lowercase n, n just stands for networking. Um, we launched the C5N virtualized instance last year. Um, this is uh, based on a new Nitro card for VPC that allows us to do 100-gig networking. 100-gig networking is super useful for a lot of customers, which is why we built it. Um, it's ideal for HPC workloads. So anyone who's worked in HPC, and I have a background in HPC, um, will sort of recognize that typical HPC applications have this thing where you take a large problem, like you know I'm trying to uh, model the weather around the globe, you break it down into pieces and then say, launch n number of nodes on my supercomputer or on, my, on, my, on AWS. Give each node a subset of the problem to go solve. And so the node works on the subset of the problem. But when they're done with solving that problem, they sort of have to exchange that information with all the other nodes in the cluster. And that exchange of information happens over the network. And that has to happen really quickly and efficiently. And that actually requires, and those kinds of workloads actually benefit from a high bandwidth, low latency uh, network like the one we offer. This is also super interesting for customers who are doing distributed machine learning and and applications like that. The other use case that customers really benefit from 100 gig networking is where um, they're sort of running an application in an instance ingesting a bunch of data from S3 over the network, doing the computations and pushing results back to S3. One of the things I really, really want to talk about is the elastic fabric adapter. This is something we talked about at reInvent last year, but we really launched it this year. Um, Again, if you're in HPC and you know about uh, things like OFA or or InfiniBand or Omnipath, The Elastic Fabric adapter was designed for workloads like HPC. We built it. uh, We integrated it with with a library called LibFabric. And I'll show you a picture in a minute. Uh, LibFabric is really this um, library that a lot of MPI implementations or the message passing interface implementations talk to. It's based on a protocol that we built in-house called the Scalable Reliable Datagram Protocol, or SRD. SRD gives you great performance on our networks. We know how our networks are built. We know how we do a multipathing, um, And so we built this protocol that gives you really, really good performance. In fact, um, uh, Peter DeSantis talked about um, um, SRD in his keynote, and I, I, I encourage you to go watch his keynote because he talked about it quite, in quite a bit detail. The, um, the user mode components, all the libraries, and all the kernel mode components for libfabric are now integrated into things like Amazon Linux and Amazon Linux 2 and, and a few other distros. So if you were to launch an instance um, and use Libfabric or use EFA, you'll actually it'll, it should just work. So in 2019 we launched EFA as I mentioned. Um, we launched it on um, if you were to fire up a c5n 18x large instance or a p3d n24x large instance, you should see what you really see is an EBS NVMe controller, an ENA uh, network adapter for ENA, and you'll also see a new type of net- network adapter for EFA. And that's what this is. So let's do a little bit of a deep dive on this right so this is what a software stack uh, looks like if you were in hpc for example so you write your hpc application and hpc might sound really boring but uh, you know one of the fun uh, hpc things i've seen is uh, the formula 1 guys who talked about how they use hpc to figure out aerodynamics of a car of a race car so Traditionally, this was done by taking the car physically into a wind tunnel and sort of blowing air over it and looking at the car, studying its its performance characteristics. And um, now, the way way scientists are doing this is they model it, right? They model the car, and they model the airflow over the car. These are very computationally demanding applications. And so you launch them across a ton of nodes or a ton of instances. In most of these cases, the scaling of the application is really how quickly you can do the computation and how quickly you can exchange the results to sort of come up to a conclusion. And at the keynote, uh, the guest speaker from um, one of the Formula One race car um, groups was talking about how they used to spend 14 hours doing these simulations on a supercomputer to how they've reduced time over time and by launching on AWS now with a ton of nodes or a ton of instances, they're actually able to do it in like a few hours, the same simulation. So 14 days down to two hours. But if you really look at one of these applications, the way it looks like is the picture on the left is, is what are, uh, the, yeah the picture on the left is, is what the application looks like. There's an application that's essentially talking to a library like MPI. And if you don't know what MPI is, it's basically a library that allows you to do sends and receives. It allows you to do things like collectives, like, you know, um, across a bunch of nodes. But think of it as a library that lets you do sockets, right? The MPI implementations are typically written on top of TCP IP. So if you've written a sockets application, you open a socket, you do a socket send, you do a socket receive, and so on. Now, every time you send a packet from your application or you do some kind of a broadcast, it's making a system call into the kernel stack, copying data from user space into kernel space, going down to the driver where the headers get slapped on and it goes out the ENA device, out the network. Now, over time, we've obviously made the ENA device. Um, we've optimized the stack quite a bit, so you get decently, decently low latencies. But the picture on the right is what really happens when you talk to EFA. You have the same application. You have the same MPI library. But now the MPI library is talking to libfabric. And libfabric sort of has providers. And one of the providers we upstreamed is um, the provider for EFA. So, at init time, the EFA or LibFabric talks to the kernel EFA driver to set up the device. But once that is done, you basically get the kernel space out of the way. So when your application is running at runtime and sending and receiving data, it's using the other path where LibFabric is directly talking to hardware. So all that latency of making a system call, copying data in and out, is out of the way. So you get really, really low latencies and high bandwidth. This is an example of uh, uh, a computational fluid dynamics example uh, from, a, from a company called Metacomp, uh, they did a simulation with 24 million cells. Uh, like I said, uh, in HPC space, uh, application scaling is big. And think of it this way. If you have an application and, and it takes 20 seconds to, to uh, come up with a result, if I give you twice the number of CPUs, you'd expect it to take 10 seconds. If I give you four times the number of CPUs, you expect it to take five seconds. That would be perfect scaling. That's the red line. Um, so in this case, we've gone from you know zero to 1,200 cores. We expect scaling to be roughly 1,200 as we go up that line. The blue line shows what happens when you run with EFA. Uh, the scaling is actually pretty good. The reason it sort of falls off on the end is because this application has weak scaling. The data size is not big enough. But see what happens with the purple line where you're not using EFA or EFA is disabled. It actually falls off really, really quickly because there is this overhead. We also introduced accelerator instances based on the Nitro system. Um, This is things like G4 and P3DN last year. Uh, G4 is based on the NVIDIA T4 GPUs. So if you think of a a physical platform, what we have is a CPU with a bunch of Nitro cards and a bunch of physical GPUs. And so when you launch an instance, you have access to the GPUs in pass-through mode. You're not talking to the hypervisor. The GPU is directly assigned to the instance. So you get all the performance benefits of GPUs. This is ideal, as you can imagine, for machine learning applications um, or graphics-intensive applications. This is, a, this is a really cool instance we introduced in 2019 called I3-EN. Again, N stands for the high-bandwidth, high, high or C5 or 100 gig networking, and E stands for enhanced storage. This is the instance that offers the lowest price per gigabyte of instant storage. And if you launch the largest instance type, you get 60 terabytes of storage on one instance. Customers really like this instance because they get this large amount of local storage and a super fast network, 100 gig network, to sort of ingest data right into the local storage and then do things like distributed file systems or or distributed databases. But really what this instance offers is high random I.O. access to large amounts of local data. How many of you here actually have been to the, I don't know if you guys have seen the Outpost uh, deep dives uh, that Anthony Ligori has presented, but Outpost is something we talked about at reInvent last year, Um, and I just want to touch upon really, really quickly, uh, because Outpost is also powered by Nitro. Uh, Customers came to us and said, we want the capability to basically take your hardware, put it in our data center, and this can be for a variety of reasons. Customers might have a database on-prem, that they want to sort of let their instances get to quickly with low latency. Or they might have you know, privacy or security reasons that they want the data to be on-prem. But they wanted to use our APIs and, and, and sort of get the same AWS experience. And that's what Outpost is. And um, I won't go into too much detail into Outpost because there's a ton of sessions, um, along with launch discussions around Outposts. All right. so. Um, One of the things I really want to focus on, um, and this is super important for all of you, the the customer, is uh, how we manage our fleet. So the challenge we have is the following, right? So AWS has been growing. Uh, We have 22 regions worldwide, 69 availability zones, and if you don't know what an availability zone is, it's physically a different data center. It's actually a group of data centers that are physically apart or physically, physically different So we, as AWS, tell our customers, when you build an application, you basically go multi-AZ as a strategy, because if, if one AZ dies for your loss of power or loss of network, you have redundancy built into your application. Now, the other thing that's happening is, as we're growing number of regions and number of AZs, the EC2 fleet is also growing. In fact, we're adding physical hardware to our EC2 fleet every single day, which means nitro cards, which means hypervisors, and so on. And we also have support for Intel, AMD, and ARM. So we have a a sort of diversity of architectures. As we were starting to build the Nitro system, we quickly realized and we anticipated this growth. So we started thinking about how do we manage this fleet in terms of software deployments. There is software running on these cards. How will we manage this fleet? And this is super important because we have to deploy security patches. We can't have customer instances running on on a server that's not secure. We have to deploy bug fixes, right? Software is not perfect. I write code. I, I have bugs in my code. We have to deploy performance improvements. You as a customer say, I've seen this performance bottleneck. We go fix it. We deploy it. And most importantly, when a customer comes to us and says, hey, we need this new feature or this new capability, we're able to work on the feature or capability and then deploy it as soon as it's ready. An example of, of, of one such thing is a capability called diagnostic interrupts. If, if you've not heard of it, I'll describe it, what it is. So, imagine you have a physical server running Linux, just one server running Linux, right? Sometimes that server hangs or Linux hangs. What you normally do in that case is you either say uh, send an NMI, a non maskable interrupt, to the CPU to essentially, and you configure your kernel or the kernel to say crash when it gets an NMI. And when it crashes, typically it generates a core dump, which is a file. You can then go look at the core dump and say, oh, I know why it crashed because there was a deadlock or something. Customers wanted this ability on the EC2 cloud. They wanted the ability to say, uh, my instance is stuck. There is something going on in my instance. I want to be able to crash it. So you can actually go in and say, configure to uh, dump a core when I send it a diagnostic interrupt. You can do this across virtualized and bare metal instances. So this was a capability that customers asked us. We built it, and we deployed it. And so this is an example of why we needed this capability to deploy software. So our solution was we. Built a, we purpose-built a service within EC2 that allows us to deploy software quickly. Now, notice, as, we've, as I've gone through the slides I've mentioned, a lot of our functionality lives on the Nitro card. And because it lives on the Nitro card, we can actually deploy the software without any impact to the instances running on the host. So if you think about this for a second, what we're doing is you as customers are running on a host, and we're changing the software from, from underneath you. With, with patches and bug fixes and features and performance improvements. This, because it runs, because a lot of our software runs on, the, on, on Nitro cards, we can do this for both virtualized and bare metal instances. And I really want you to think about this in, in the following way, right? If you launched an instance about a year ago, and that instance has been running, your application has been running in an instance for a year, we have made sure that the physical hardware, and, and, and um, whether it's a bare metal instance or a virtualized instance, is updated with new software periodically. The other thing that this this feature, this, this uh, capability that uh, we build gives us is it gives us velocity control. So we can actually decide how often we want to deploy and with what velocity we want to go across the world. So do we want to do one AZ, or we want to do 10 AZs, or 15 AZs, or whatever it is. The other thing uh, that is super, super, super important, because we tell our customers to build their applications multi-AZ, it would not make a lot of sense for us to say, Let's update all three AZs in this region on the same day. So what we do is, when we deploy our software, we always deploy to one AZ on a region per day. So if things go horribly wrong, we can roll back and you know, essentially avoid customer impact as much as possible. So in terms of a picture, this is what it looks like. Um, what I'm showing here is a simple server that's running four customer instances in yellow. There's a Nitro hypervisor on the host. It's running some version X of software. There are two Nitro cards in this example, running version Y and version Z of software. And when we basically say we want to, we want to basically update this, this physical machine, we come in and change the version of the hypervisor and the cards. And the customer instances just continue running. The key point to notice here is the customer instances continue running on the same physical server. We're not migrating them to a different server. I think that's the end of my talk.